The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, I want to invite, invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be continuing our series through Ephesians today. And um, what I really want to do before we dive into the heart of what's at verses 7 through 10 today is I want to take a moment and back up to verse 3, and I want to recap for you something we talked about last week, and that is God's sovereign election in salvation. Because the two concepts of election and what we're going to talk about today, which is redemption, they run hand in hand. And for, in order for us to fully understand election, we need to understand redemption. In order for us to understand redemption, we need to understand what we talked about last week with election. And so what we established last week and what we said about election last week was that as part of God's election, his choice was not based on our worth before Christ. It was not based on our potential once we repented of our sins and trusted in Christ. And it wasn't based on our connections with others. So the thing that we bring into election is nothing. Like there's no basis on our own for why God chose to save save us. It's nothing that we can brag about. Instead, we saw how Paul explained in verses 3 through 6 that God's choice in salvation was based purely upon his grace. It's not based on anything that we have to offer. And what we saw is that God's choice, being based purely upon his grace, it saves us from somehow thinking that we're superior to others because we have salvation. It saves us from bragging about, look what I contributed to my salvation because I had the right connections and God decided that it was good to save me. It saves us from these errors. Instead, knowing that we bring nothing to salvation, which I'm going to add to that, that we actually bring something. It's just not something good here in just a moment. But, but knowing that we bring nothing to salvation, it actually frees us and leads us to a life of humility instead because we don't deserve this gift of salvation that we've been given, and we live out of that. And so knowing this, I want to remind you of two small things before we look at our passage in Ephesians chapter 1 today. First, I want you to understand And I'm going to ground what we look at today because I believe that Paul does this in the reality that we are looking at one letter in the entire story of redemption held throughout the entirety of Scripture. So as we read Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus, I want to remind you that we're looking at a story of redemption that includes this passage but is not limited to only this passage. It's a theme throughout Scripture, and I'll point that out for you. This story has at its center Jesus and his death but it involves God's redeeming of people, including us. We play a part in this story. God's glory is at the center. The crucifixion of Jesus, his death and resurrection from the grave is at the center. But we get to play a part in it. God has invited us into it. But it's also rooted in history. Paul's addressing real issues. He's talking to real lives. These aren't just concepts kind of thrown out into the air, but these are concepts that people would hold on to, that they would give hope to real lives as we look at them and as we proclaim the gospel. And that's the first thing I want you to know. This is grounded in history. It's grounded in reality, not just a letter magically given, brought down by angels. Grounded in history. It's rooted in real lives. But the second thing is that Paul's going to use different literary devices in his letters. He does this at different points. And what's interesting about these verses that we're going to examine today and that we looked at last week is that Paul's actually using a type of Jewish poetry here. And it leads many scholars to believe that this is actually Paul once again exclaiming in song. 
So uh, maybe if you've heard some teaching before about Philippians 2, when Jesus didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped or held onto, but added onto himself flesh, and it came and lived a life of humility and died in our place. And he didn't just die a normal death, but died a death on a cross, but was raised to life. That's a, that's a song. All of that in Philippians 2 is a song. Here in Ephesians 1, we see the same thing. So literally what we're seeing happen in this letter is that Paul's going to introduce himself. He's going to say, Paul, you know, an, an apostle to the Lord Jesus Christ, writing to the church at Ephesus. Let me sing you a song. All right, so we, we, got, we have to recognize what's going on here. And what's actually happening is it's not like a musical number, but Paul is so overwhelmed by joy that it leads him to exclaim the gospel in this poetry, poetry or prose. It, it's, it's a song of gratitude, of joy, of wonder and marvel at the mystery of the gospel. And so I, I want you to see that. I want you to see that this is why before we even get to the preaching of God's word, we're exclaiming the truths about God and about what he's done for us in song. It's an overflow of the realization of the reality that God has saved us when we didn't deserve it. And that's what Paul is doing here in his letter. So those things being said, let's read Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read for you verses 3 through 10. Today's sermon is going to focus on verses 7 through 10. I want you to see how it all ties together. So picking up in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We need to look at the reality of of what's going on here. And what these verses are going to boil down to is we're going to talk about redemption today. So my plan for today's sermon is simple. We're going to define redemption. We're going to talk about what redemption means. We're going to talk about how God's people are redeemed. How is that accomplished? And we're going to talk about who or what can be redeemed. So that's our outline for today. So let's start by defining redemption. If you notice when I was reading these verses... If you're anything like me, or maybe if you remember and you can think back to your days in school, for some of us a little bit longer back than others, but that's okay. Uh, We have this concept that we learned in English pretty early on of run-on sentences. Do y'all remember run-on sentences? Like, it's like we got like four thoughts. It's like, so I took my dog to the vet and he got a haircut and we took him back to get some dog ice cream and then we took him home and then we gave him a bath and then it was all better. Like, that's a run-on sentence. And usually if you were to write that sentence in a paper, your teacher would take a nice big mark and be like, you should have split this up into you know, different sentences, maybe made a story out of it. And in verses 7 through 10, it's kind of terrifying, but kind of exciting, because when Scott asked me to do this, he was like, why don't you take verses 7 through 10? I said, all right, three verses. And I looked, it's one sentence. Like, Paul just doesn't, he keeps adding on and adding on and adding on. And so to understand the heart of what Paul's talking about, we need to boil it down to, to the simplest thought. What is the thought in this sentence that can stand on its own? Because every other thing in the sentence will modify or describe how it's accomplished. So to boil the sentence down, the main idea is this. We have redemption through his blood. Everything else is going to describe how it's accomplished 
or what is redeemed or who redeemed it. It's all describing we have redemption through his blood. Redemption is the central theme of this sentence, of these verses. And so redemption is not just a defining theme in these verses. As I said earlier, we're looking at a piece in the story that's throughout all of Scripture. The pages of Scripture recount this epic of God pursuing after his people and ultimately redeeming them in Jesus. So what is redemption? Well, to find out, I opened up a really, really, really thick textbook I had to read once for college. It's about 1,700 pages. It's called Systematic Theology. It's by Wayne Grudem, and it's an incredible resource. And I really like how he defined redemption. He defined it this way. Redemption is the penalty for sin paid by Christ and accepted by God the Father. Redemption is the penalty for sin paid by Christ and accepted by God the Father. In Scripture, we're actually going to see the tension of how people can be redeemed or, or redemption. It's, it's this tension that's an integral part in the lives of God's people. It, it, it plays really the central theme. The, the question always comes back to how are God's people going to be redeemed? And Paul's going to clarify in these verses two realities about redemption. First is that it's accomplished through Christ's blood. We have redemption through his blood. Whose blood? Christ's blood. And so in Hebrews 9.22, the writer of Hebrews talks about this tension of redemption as we see in the Older Testament. And he writes this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So redemption happens through the blood of Jesus. But second, it forgave our trespasses. See, the payment was blood, and it was given to the Father and completely forgave our trespasses. But here's the reality. Redemption isn't an idea that magically appears with Jesus. As I've said many times, and I'm about to show you, it's throughout Scripture. There, the reality that it's like, man, how are we going to save God's people? Here's a new idea. Redemption through blood doesn't just be, in, it's not introduced with Jesus. It it goes throughout the pages of Scripture. So let's, let's look at it together. I just want to trace through Scripture very quickly. I'm not about to read the whole Bible, so you don't have to fear. But we're going to look through and highlight some important stories that show redemption. And I'm just showing to you a couple examples of something that you can turn throughout the pages of your Bible and see for yourselves. So let's start with Adam and Eve, because that's a good place to start, right? First man, first woman. In, with Adam, we see a reality of God and man dwelling together in perfect harmony perfect harmony in the Garden of Eden. But Adam listened to the voice of deception, and instead of obeying God and entrusting God's commands, you know what he did instead? He he ate the fruit. To which every time you tell the story, I always have the thought, like, come on, Adam. Like, man, like, really, did you have to do that? All right, so, but we see the reality that it's not just man that experiences separation from God, but this is crucial, and I think sometimes we forget about this, but all of creation fell in that moment. Like, it wasn't just, although this is the most important aspect, that that God and man experienced separation, but that sin entered all of creation. Suddenly, there were things in creation that weren't intended to be there before. Suddenly, working was hard work, and you had to work the ground by the sweat of your brow, and, and a curse entered the world as a result of one man's disobedience. And after Adam and Eve sinned, not only did God pursue them, he made clear the realities of the curse, but he does something absolutely incredible. See, the Bible says that Adam and Eve realized their sin and that they were naked and ashamed. That's bigger than a physical reality. But what God does after that is incredible. In Genesis, it says that he clothed them with skins. 
That he recognized their nakedness, that he covered them up. And, and it's not just this physical covering, but it's this spiritual reality. Because as I said, and as I quoted the writer of Hebrews who said, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The writer of Genesis says that, that God clothed them with skins. And that implies that something had to die. That blood had to be spilled to cover their sins. And God immediately made a way for redemption to be possible. And he clothed them with skins. Fast forward a little bit. We meet a man named Abram. And as we talk about election and redemption going together, Abram's life is a, is a clear thing about it. It's a clear example of it. Because what we see in the story of Abram is that God's election takes place in how he chooses a pagan worshiper. So I don't know if you've noticed or not, but as I read through Genesis, every time it kind of makes me laugh a little bit because when I reach Genesis 12:1, it just says, now Abram. And I'm like, time out, where's Abram come from? Really, we don't see anything about Abram at all. God sovereignly chooses Abram to make him the father of the Israelites. And it's all because of God's grace. There's no, now Abram had been faithful and his granddaddy had been a, a preacher of the word and faithful and his dad had been a preacher of the word and faithful. Instead, we see the opposite, that he was a pagan worshiper. And God chooses to make a covenant with Abram. So he makes the covenant with Abram, changes the name to Abraham to reflect his new identity, to reflect the covenant that was made, and he promises to give him a son. We see years go by, but God is faithful to the promise, and he gives him Isaac. But then we see an interesting uh, accounting of a story where God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. The promise was supposed to happen through him, that through his lineage, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He has one son, and God says, I want you to sacrifice him. But Abraham's obedient. And as Abraham goes to strike his son, an angel stops him, and we see the reality of how Abraham truly trusted in God. It wasn't just something Abraham said, but he was willing to display that. He trusted, as we see in Hebrews, that God could even possibly raise Isaac from the dead. Pretty much Abraham's like, God, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I know two things. You promised to make me the father of many nations, and you've told me to do this, and I will obey. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I'm going to trust you, and he did. Ultimately, a ram was given as an angel stops Abraham right before he's about to kill his son. And blood is spilled again. And we see hand in hand the believing and the forgiveness of sins and the spilling of blood. If we fast forward again, we see the Israelites in bondage to the Egyptians. God displays his power through plagues, each one attacking a specific Egyptian God, displaying his power over each and every one of them. And ultimately, we reach the culmination of these plagues in the Passover. And so God commands the Israelites. He tells Moses, give the Israelites a warning. Give them a heads up that the angel of death is about to pass by. And all of the firstborns in Egypt who do not have the blood of an unblemished lamb on their doorposts will be killed. And again, a lamb is sacrificed. Blood is spilled. But death is spared. They're given life. And so again, we see redemption. We see a price paid that, that they might be given life. Once rescued, the Israelites are in the wilderness and God establishes his covenant with them. And crucial to this covenant is the tabernacle and the temple. And there we see the sacrificial system established where once a year, hands will be placed on unblemished lamb, sins will be confessed, and blood will be spilled to forgive the sins of the nation. All throughout the Old Testament this happens. At each point in the process though, it's, it's not perfect. Because the problem is, is that their sinfulness, right? So like God makes his covenant with the Israelites. 
He says, I'm going to give you a promised land. I'm going, to, I'm going to lead you into this land. I'm going to give you victory. I have promises to Abraham. I will be faithful to it. I've led you out of Egypt. I will lead you into this land. So they're told to, give, to send spies into Jericho and say, hey, scout out the land. Let's see what we're dealing with, and we'll go in and attack. So they send 12 spies in. 12 spies come back. Two of them say, we got it. We can take of them. Ten of them go, I, I don't know. I mean, have you seen how tall they are? I mean, they're, they're pretty big. I mean, they can just step on us and squash us like bugs. They immediately forgot. They didn't trust in God's promises. They forgot his power in Egypt, and they immediately sinned after God revealed himself to them. After God made a covenant with them, after he led them out of Egypt, they forgot their sinfulness at every step along the way. And man, it continues throughout the king's the kingdom splits, is taken over, and we reach the end of the Older Testament, and we reach the book of Malachi, and the Lord addresses the sacrifices in the state of how the people were giving sacrifices. In Malachi 1.8, he says, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? The reality of what we've got going on in this passage is that instead of bringing an unblemished lamb, we used to joke about this when we talked about the sacrificial system in youth. I don't know if you remember. But remember when we talked about like the three-legged lamb that was like cross-eyed coming up to the altar? And I was like, ah, right? Like it walks up to the altar and they're like, here you go, God. Here's my best. And it doesn't have all its legs. It's like furs all matted and stuff. And it's like cross-eyed, like looking at you. Kind of funny, not even really sounding like a lamb. All right, so compare that to the image of an unblemished lamb that God asked for. And that's the state of the sacrifices. The point is they were doing it half-heartedly. They didn't care anymore. They didn't have reverence for the holy God who was willing to pardon their sins. In fact, God goes on to say through the prophet Malachi in this chapter, that it would be better if someone just shut the doors and they just cut out the sacrificial system entirely because he was tired of it. Man, if that's your only way for redemption, where's the hope in that? When God's so fed up, he's just like, you know what, just close the doors because I'm tired of this. You, you don't even care anyways. But you wouldn't even offer that to your governors, and you want to offer it to me, the holy of holies? And that's the state we see in the Older Testament. And that's how it closes. Because here's the reality. It's, it's not just Israel who needs redemption. I mean, I'm tracing that through Israel, but back in Genesis, God's promise to Abraham is that Israel will be a blessing to all nations. They completely failed at that because it wasn't just Israel that needs saved. It's all nations. It's us. We need redemption. The same reality is true of us. Man, we don't come to the table with a bargaining chip. And that's what we talked about of election. Man, you want to bring your connections in? It's not going to do you any good. Man, you want to bring your good works to the table? Guess what? They're done in selfishness trying to save yourself, and that's what got you in trouble in the first place. That's not worth anything. You want to talk about your potential or your worth before Christ? It's not there. Man, we're all guilty. So I said before that, that I would even submit to you, Pastor Scott is exactly right in saying we bring nothing to the table. And I would even submit to you we bring worse than that. Jonathan Edwards even said that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin which made it necessary for the first place. So maybe you're holding on and you're really wanting to wrestle this fact and say, but man, I've got to bring something to the table. Matt, like seriously, I'm telling you, I'll bring something to the table of salvation. I'll give it to you. You bring your sin. You bring what makes it necessary in the first place. I bring what makes my salvation necessary in the first place. So you want to talk about a bargaining chip. The bargaining chip you have is the fact that you need saved in the first place. And that sounds like bad news. But it's not. 
See, none of us are immune. Man, even if we go by the Ten Commandments, we just go by the, the rules that everyone knows, that you grow up knowing, especially if you're in church. If you go by the Ten Commandments, you're going to say, all right, let's play a little game. Let's test ourselves against the Ten Commandments to see if we're in need of redemption. All right, how many of you have told a lie? And we're done. That's it. Like, that's all we've got going for us. Maybe, maybe you want to make the argument, all right, I've, I've never told a lie. I've never purposely deceived anyone. All right, let's go with it. Because what happens next is suddenly we don't play this game of, well, I know I don't measure up to the Ten Commandments. Maybe you've never purposely deceived anyone, but most people are willing to accept that they've lied before. Suddenly it becomes this game of, well, at least I'm more righteous than this guy over here because he murdered someone. So, you know, on the last day when I stand before God and God has to choose between me, who's maybe told a couple white lies, and a murderer over here, who's he going to choose? He's going to choose me because I didn't murder anyone. Well, let's talk about it for a moment. Number one, when Jesus talks about the Ten Commandments in the Newer Testament, he asks, you ever hated anyone in your heart before? Man, have you ever gotten excited when someone got what was coming to them? Example, you ever been driving down 85, someone blow past you doing at least 105, and you're like, oh man, I can't believe they're driving like that. Like, what are they even doing? And then you see a, a state trooper zooming behind them with the police lights, and you're like, get them, boy, like, let's go, pull them over. Mm. Suddenly, we, we've, up, we've up the stakes a little bit. You probably saw it in my life because I just got really passionate about that, right? Okay, so it's a reality that we all fall under. Listen, we are not excused. We can't offer up someone else's righteousness. It's not going to get you off the hook. So if we need saved and the sacrifices were only temporary and really at the end of that, that time, God was like, you might as well shut the doors anyways because I'm, I'm done with this. How can we be saved? Well, let me tell you, how are we redeemed? That's the second part. Redemption happens according to the plan of the Father. Redemption happens according to the plan of the Father. It's accomplished in Christ the Son, and it's revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. Let me say that one more time for you. Redemption happens according to the plan of the Father. We talked about this last week, that this wasn't anything new to God. He wasn't responding or having like a gut reaction plan B of Jesus. Right? We see this in the doctrine of election, so it goes together. It's accomplished in Christ the Son, and it's revealed to us in the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about that. I think the reality is that we all recognize, and maybe if you haven't yet, then let me introduce it to you, is that we don't bring a lamb to church anymore. We don't have an altar up here, and Ethan doesn't lead us in a song while we confess sins over the lamb, give it a nice little throat slit, let the blood pour out, and then we're good to go for the next week. That doesn't happen anymore. Why? Because Jesus' sacrifice was enough. Redemption was accomplished through his blood and by God's grace, which he lavished upon us. And man, I want to talk about this for a moment because how beautiful is the imagery. That's not like God gave you some grace, but that he lavished it upon us. He poured it over us. Listen to this from John 1.16. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. In Romans 5, 15 and 20, Paul writes that the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, through Adam's disobedience, which we inherited, which we are all disobedient, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, listen to this, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. Man, as, as a great theologian, David Crowder said, if grace is an ocean, we're all sinking, right? I mean, that was my song when I was in youth group, man. We would sing that, how he loves the spirit would come in and we would just fall to our knees, right? But that's the reality. I mean, that's a beautiful picture of it. 
Man, if, if you want to talk about God's grace, you want to talk about how much sin's in your life, and man, we, we really feel convicted by that, let me give you some good news. God's grace is greater. His mercies are more. That's the reality that we see in the Scripture. So back in the 1500s, John Calvin was preaching a sermon on these very verses, and he said it this way, God puts our sins out of his remembrance and drowns them in the depths of the sea. And moreover, he receives the payment that was offered him in the person of his only son. I think we need to deal with the reality that a lot of us are guilty of living in ways that we don't believe that Jesus is the way that redemption occurs. And I don't think we would say it in those words. I certainly wouldn't say it in in those words. But I know that what ends up happening is when we live functionally in a way that we don't believe that Jesus is the way of redemption, since we're prone to extremes, it plays out in one of two ways. So let's talk about it for a moment. The first way it usually plays out is we submit to legalism and tiring legalism. And what I mean by that is following the commands of Jesus separate from having the relationship with Christ, separate from the understanding of the gospel. We want to take, for example, the Ten Commandments and just try to live by them under our own power. We transform church from an opportunity to respond and to worship at God and to look at the beauty of the grace that's been poured upon us, lavished upon us, and we, and we turn it into another mark on our resumes that we're going to submit before God. So instead of church being an opportunity to gather together with God's people, to be reminded of the fact that he saved us, when the only thing we brought to the table is our sin in the first place, and instead of having wonder and awe at that, we turn it into, all right, another Sunday down. Let's mark it off the list. Because, man, when I get to heaven and I'm compared to someone else, I'm going to be pulling up. See this? 16 weeks straight. You see that, God? 16 weeks in a row I was with your people. Maybe, Maybe we don't say it that way, but... The reality is that when we come in, there's no joy in our hearts. Maybe we come in because we're forced to be here. Maybe we come in because that's what you've grown up doing and you just don't know any different. It's separated from the gospel. It becomes this idea that if we don't have enough good things for God when we stand before him, then maybe we can bank on being better than this guy. Listen to me, if you're not finding the hope for your salvation in Jesus, that's what it boils down to. Because if we don't have Jesus' righteousness to offer up, then listen to me. A pastor I listened to once said this, and it's incredible, and I think it's true. If we don't have Jesus' righteousness to offer up, then the best righteousness we have to offer as an alternative is someone else's. At least I'm not like this guy. Yeah, you want to talk about him? You want to talk about, he had four divorces, and look at me, God. I was at church every time the doors were open. Yet you see that? Oh, you want, to, you want to talk about that? I even went to Sunday school. Yeah, yeah, I'm telling you, I even went to Sunday school. Let's mark that one off the list. And that's the reality. It's this legalism. And listen, I'm not hounding on you because I, I, I want you to like muscle up some joy. What I'm telling you is that it's tiring. Man, it's, it's exhausting. And trying to keep the rules and trying to make yourself look better than someone else is the most exhausting thing you can do because there's no joy in that. There's no freedom in that. And listen to me, it's not enough. So I'm not telling you this so that you'll try harder. I I want you to see the reality of this in your life so that you can experience the freedom in God, the grace that he has lavished upon us. Let go of that. Or maybe we think it's this other reality. Maybe we look at the reality that we can't save ourselves, and instead of trying harder and being called to action, we just give up completely. We think, man, I I can't keep those standards. I have no shot. God would never want me. I can't even keep the Ten Commandments. I don't even make it past step one. 
Matt asked if I lied, man, that's it. Like, what's the point in even trying? And so you give up. You give up and search for satisfaction in your job and what you do and look for your soul identity in that. You look for fulfilling yourselves and living through your children and their accomplishments instead of the gospel, instead of being defined as God defines you. You look for satisfaction in that instead. Maybe you turn to drugs. Maybe you turn to alcohol. Maybe you turn to unhealthy relationships or depending upon people for your satisfaction. And if you feel like they don't like you, then suddenly you feel like you have no worth in the world. Listen, you, you turn to all those things and you're looking for satisfaction in all of them and all the while you're dying inside. You're suffering. It's exhausting. It's a weight you were never meant to carry because the redemption paid for by the blood of Jesus sets you free. It sets you free from those things. Your worth isn't found in your relationship with your child, with your husband, or with a friend that suddenly if they don't like you, you feel like you have no worth. It's secure and paid for in the blood of Jesus Christ because the grace of God saves us from these ideas, from these extremes. It balances them out because remember, he chose us before the foundation of the world. And here's the beauty of where election and redemption go hand in hand. If God chose you before the foundation of the world, then listen to me, he knew what he was getting into. He knew exactly what he was getting into. Your sin doesn't catch God by surprise. He never looks at you and goes, I, I don't know. I mean, you had a really bad day today. I mean, I can't believe that you, that you shot someone the bird on 85. I mean, I know traffic was bad, but really, did you, really? There's never that moment where God regrets what he's doing. He knows what he's getting into, and he paid for it in full in the blood of Jesus. Guys, the reality is that the plan of redemption wasn't plan B. I've heard teaching before, and I've heard some, some interesting comments about this, but, but listen, it wasn't that God was in the garden, and he said, Adam, don't eat from that tree. Adam ate from the tree, and suddenly he was like, oh, man, I didn't expect that one. All right. Um, okay, let's go to the book of plans for redemption. Let's see. All right, sacrifices. That should hold them over for a couple thousand years, and then... All right, then we'll have Jesus come in. Jesus, you good for it? Okay, all right, so we'll have Jesus come in for it, and then uh, we'll give it some time, and then we'll just make everything right again. That's not what's going on here. Because if we believe election to be true, that he predestined us before the foundation of the world, then that means that Jesus was the plan set forth in the fullness of time. In fact, Paul repeats this idea to the church of Galatia in Galatians 4, 4, and again to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. He says this to Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Listen, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And listen to this, his purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus, when? Before the ages began. This wasn't plan B. This wasn't, oh man, Adam messed up and now I gotta figure out what to do to save those people. Listen, all history points to Jesus. Let's look back at the thread of redemption like I talked about before where I highlighted that. Jesus is the better Adam. Adam points to Jesus. Jesus is the better Adam. He represents us in perfect obedience, whereas Adam represented us in perfect disobedience. Jesus represents us in perfect obedience and made a way of eternal life available which overpowers the death brought by Adam. Jesus is the better Isaac. Instead of the son who was spared, Jesus was the only son who was sacrificed for the salvation of all who would believe. Jesus is the better Passover lamb. 
His blood painted on the doorposts of our hearts means that we avoid eternal death. And Jesus is the true fulfillment of the law. We see in Matthew 5 that he fulfilled it perfectly and that he was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. At every point in the story of redemption, God is pointing us to Jesus. At every point, he's pointing us to Jesus because Jesus' blood is the only way that we're saved. The reality is that we can miss this truth. Guys, if it was simply up to Older Testament stories alone and we didn't have to worry about God doing a work in our hearts, I mean, wouldn't the Pharisees and Sadducees have seen it when Jesus was right before them? I mean, who better knew the Old Testament stories than the Pharisees and Sadducees? Imagine having to memorize, you know, let's even talk about five books of the Bible. How many of y'all, you know, know Leviticus pretty well? Yeah, me either, okay? So, like, they know the law. They knew the stories of God's faithfulness. They knew the history of Israel. They knew the covenant with Abraham. They knew everything I told you today, and the Pharisees and Sadducees had God in the flesh right before them, and guess what? They missed it. Missed it completely. Wasn't it the chief priests who pushed so hard for Jesus to be killed? And again, that was according to the plan of God, which was set forth before the ages began. But wasn't it the chief priest who was like, man, this guy says he's the Messiah, that's blasphemy. If the chief priest knew who Jesus was, he would recognize that Jesus was telling the truth all along. If it was just up to our own willpower in the Old Testament stories, we'd be able to see this. But there's a reality in this passage that it's revealed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Is revealed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He revealed the wisdom of God and he made known to us the mystery of the Father's will. See, the wisdom of God isn't that we're redeemed by our social status. It's not that we're redeemed because our granddaddy was a preacher. It's not that we're redeemed because we're in church every time the doors are open. It's not that we're redeemed because we're born in America. It's not that we're redeemed because I can recite John 3.16. The reality and the mystery of the gospel that is made clear to us is we are redeemed because we trust in Jesus and in his sacrifice on our behalf. None of those other things count for anything. If you aren't trusting in Jesus and in his sacrifice on your behalf, that's the reality of redemption. So we see what redemption is, we see how we're redeemed, and now I want to answer the question, who or what can be redeemed? And you might be asking yourself, what do you mean by what can be redeemed? So let's talk about it. When Wayne Grudem wrote, and I saw the definition that I gave you earlier, he went on to continue in that chapter about redemption to write this. We have been delivered from the bondage to, the, to guilt and sin. We've been delivered from bondage to the guilt of sin and from bondage to its ruling. So listen to me. It's not just that you're saved from your sin. But God has called you to things and equips you with what is necessary through his grace to accomplish those things. So listen to me. It's not just that you're saved from sin and redemption means that now you've got to walk around and it's like, man, I remember what I did and I just still feel guilty about it and I still feel condemned. But Romans 8.1 says that there's no condemnation. Man, the song that Ethan taught us so beautifully painted the picture that where we had sinned, God's mercies wiped away. There's this tension between God knowing all things and choosing not to remember, choosing not to hold against us the sins which we had committed. That's the grace that was lavished upon you. And the truth of Scripture reveals that while we are the pinnacle of God's creation and the pinnacle of God's redemption, we're not the only ones who will be redeemed. Here's what I mean by that. Creation, the earth, will be remade. Those who will be redeemed, as I explained earlier, are those who trust in Jesus and in his sacrifice on your behalf. Those are the people who will be redeemed. But all creation will be redeemed with us. It's a truth in Scripture. We see how sin brought into a fallen world, like it brought brokenness, not only between man and God, but brokenness into creation, separation from God. And throughout the narrative of Scripture, 
As I've traced for you twice already, we're going to do it one more time. The, the question is this, how is God going to dwell with his people again in perfect harmony? That's the tension that's behind scripture. Because the answer to that question is, how will God's people be redeemed? So ultimately, when we see in what Paul wrote today, that in verse 10, that Paul wrote that to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. If you're like me, you came to this passage, you're like, well, time out. Why does heaven need redeemed? Like, isn't that where God is anyways? What does that even mean? What is going on here? Like, why do we need to redeem heaven and earth? Earth, I understand. Heaven, what's going on here? Well, I want to trace for you one more time this reality that we see in Scripture where heaven and earth overlap. And what I simply mean is by the presence of God and the knowledge of him and in who he is, it overlaps with earth. So let's talk about it. In the Garden of Eden, heaven and earth perfectly overlapped. God was pleased to dwell with man like they could dwell together in perfect harmony. God and Adam had a perfect relationship. Heaven and earth perfectly overlapped. God dwelt with man, but sin broke this reality and separation ensued. God reestablishes this overlap with his people, kind of like, think like a Venn diagram of heaven and earth. And it kind of overlaps in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, God's special presence was in the middle of the camp of his people, the Israelites. And so we see this solution to how can God dwell with his people? Well, we see the tabernacle. He's in the middle of his people. But guess what happens? The people have God in the middle of the camp. They still sin and disobey him. And the question continues. It seems more hopeless. In the temple, instead of it being a tent, it's established as a beautiful building that Solomon builds. God's presence stayed in the middle of the Israelites now that they had been established in the promised land and God had been faithful to that promise and he had established their kingdom. And while God's people strayed and invading armies came in and destroyed the, the temple, the question remained unanswered. So again, we see, how can God dwell with his people? Oh, the, the temple, the temple's built. God's in the presence of his people and it's destroyed. So again, the question is asked, how can God dwell with his people? Then Jesus enters the picture. And Jesus was fully God and fully man, and everywhere he went, he was healing people, he was teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, he was teaching them the way of God, and little spots and pockets of heaven popped up all around them. Heaven and earth began to overlap again. But the reality is that the fullness of what God is doing hasn't yet been revealed to us, because we still live in a broken world. And the reality is that as believers, as the church of God, as his redeemed people, we get to share the kingdom of heaven and display heaven here on earth as God ransoms a picture of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And every week, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gather together to worship him. As we talk about on the Lord's Day, as we talk about on Sundays, think about this. On Sundays, think about the millions and billions of people who speak all kinds of different languages who are gathering around the globe to remind themselves of the gospel and to sing praise to the name of God. We gather with them. We're we're a picture of heaven, as we see in Revelation. But ultimately, Romans 8 says that the reality is that all creation groans. It longs to be redeemed. And the Spirit who revealed this gospel to us not only reminds us that God's presence is among us, that he's working through us and giving us pictures of what heaven is like, but he's also sealing us until the day when heaven and earth overlap again. So here's the deal. Election and redemption play hand in hand in that when God looks at you, he's not surprised at the mess that is our lives as we work through it and try to look more like Christ. In fact, he gives us the spirit as a seal. So here's what I want you to picture. Imagine a king who would have a ring 
And he would dip it in wax and put a wax seal in an envelope. And that wax seal meant that the only person who was to open that is the person who would receive the letter. And when the person who received the letter that the king intended got it, he would know that it was sealed by the king, that the king himself had sent it, and that he was the only one given permission to open it. That's the kind of seal that the king of kings places on our hearts through the power of the Spirit. It's secure. Nothing can take that away. Nothing can take you away when you are trusting, when you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that seal will only be broken when God's creation is redeemed with us, when everything's made right. This time, God will clearly dwell with his people again as it was in the Garden of Eden. But guess what? It's not a garden this time. It's a city. And we see this city in Revelation 22, 3 through 5. John says this, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, before God dwelt in the middle of his people, even though it wasn't its fullness and as clear as this, they disobeyed. John's saying this time, God's coming back. He's going to make everything right. And when God's in the middle of his people, his glory will shine so bright. You're not going to need a lamp. You're not going to need a light anymore. You won't need the sun. God will be so fully dwelling in the midst of his people. They won't stray from him anymore. They'll walk in his light. They'll be obedient to him and they will be filled with joy. Everything will be made right. God's people will be redeemed. All who trust in the promise of Jesus, who trust in his redemption, will be redeemed. And listen, that gives us the motivation to live for him. Man, when you recognize that God looks at your life, knows what he's getting into, forgives you for that, man, that gives you motivation unlike trying to prove yourself to God, unlike trying to earn your salvation. It motivates you to live for him. When God redeems us, it means that we are fully secure in him. God's election and redemption means that God knows us fully and sends the Spirit to seal us until that day when he makes all things right. And I know that some of you in this room are tired. Man, you're stuck in this perpetual uh, motion of of keeping God's commands, of, of trying and struggling and hoping that God delights in you. And maybe if I can just read my Bible more a week, then God's delight will be on me. But listen to me, Jesus has earned the Father's delight for you. Your identity is secure in him. Rest. When we go from reading the Bible or praying, because those are both great things to try to earn God's delight, and suddenly it becomes out of joy of knowing our Creator who has lavished grace upon us, there's a whole difference in motivation. There's a whole difference in motivation in that. So rest. But listen, this redemption also gives us a strength to make it through tough times. It gives us a strength to make it through tough times. There's a reality in the church that we need to fight back against that the solution to our problems that God has for us is that he'll pull us out of them. I don't think that's a reality we see in scripture. What seems to be the reality is that God will walk with us through them, that he will make us look more like Christ in them. And I know that it doesn't sound like good news, but the reality is that the fact that all creation will be redeemed and that we will be redeemed gives us motivation to live and to endure those tough times because guess what? When we dwell with God in his fullness, everything we went through here won't even be worth comparing to the joy that we'll experience in the presence of God the Father. It won't even be worth saying, I don't know, I'd kind of rather go back to earth. Like that thought's not going to cross our minds. And the hope that we have and the, the knowledge, the security we have that God's going to make everything right, that's our motivation to make it through the tough times. 
It's not so much that, that God's going to pull us out of it. But listen, trusting in the kingdom of God, man, it's our motivation to invite others in. Because guess what? When we understand redemption, when we understand that all things will be redeemed, that it was paid for in the blood of Jesus Christ, instead of trying to muster up our best efforts and trying to earn God's favor, you know what happens? We rest. We recognize that God has lavished grace upon us. And instead of trying to try harder, suddenly this news is so good, we want to invite as many people in on this as possible. We want to tell as many people as possible, guys, my hope is secure. I have a loving creator who sees my sin and in Christ has forgotten them. When he looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus wrapped around me. He doesn't see my sin anymore. He loves me and he delights in me. And that can be available to you too if you just believe. Suddenly we're saved from a ritual of going to church because we have to and reading our Bibles to try to check off a daily reading plan. Suddenly there's motivation and joy and freedom. There's freedom in that. Man, won't you experience that today? The sureness of God's election leads to our present redemption. And listen, election and redemption play together in that it's a past election, present redemption. And guess what? It gives us hope for future restoration of everything, for everything to be made right. Guys, it's out of this that we sing. And that's what I want to encourage you to do. So I'm going to pray. And Ethan's going to come up. And man, I just want to encourage you. Today, it's just going to be really simple. Let's just sing out of the good news that we have freedom. We don't have to earn God's delight, but Jesus has earned it for us, that he was the perfect sacrifice and that in him, redemption is made possible. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are not caught off guard by us, God, that when you would be perfectly right to look at us and give us the right punishment for our sin in the fullness of time, you sent Jesus to die on our behalf that when we trust in him, we will be completely forgiven. God, as we look to the scripture, as we're reminded of the gospel, God, I pray for those who are in bondage, who feel like they're trying so hard to earn God's favor, God, that you would remind them of your delight. God, I pray that what would be heard today isn't bondage or isn't, man, I just, I I need to give up, but that it would be grace that, God, you have given us freedom, that you've lavished grace upon us. God, that's that's my prayer. God, would you help us to sing out of a realization of just how good your gospel is? Lord, it's in your name I pray. Amen. As we go to sing, uh, I want to encourage you to do just that. But if you feel led by the Spirit to to respond in another way, I want to encourage you in boldness to do that as well. I'll be up front. If you want to talk about more of, of what it means to follow Jesus, maybe you're struggling with something, I'd love to talk with you about that. Maybe you just need people to pray, pray with you. There is a team gathered out these doors on this side who are willing to pray with you. Listen, whatever it is, be, be obedient to that. And as we sing, if you feel led to sing, remember the goodness of the fact that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, that God's delight is perfectly on us, that he fully delights in us because of Jesus, and that we are freed from trying to earn God's favor. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.